Let's continue our experiments in learning the art of listening. Let's try a little experiment, all of us together, right now. Come to your breathing. with the breathing as a kind of anchor. Focus your attention on sound. Just listen to sound in this room right now, any sound. And when there's no sound, Listen to silence, all while breathing in and breathing out. Bringing the realm of sound into focus. Other things are happening, but feature sound and stillness. And listen with your whole being, not straining, but so fully attentive, relaxed, alert, and so fully attentive that you're listening even with your body. As if the body is just one big ear listening.
can now just listen to the talk. Interesting. Uh, suggesting that we listen to sound and uh, from my experience the room was unusually quiet just when we want some sound. Uh, it reminds me of, you know, from time to time I'll say, um, well, I'm going to get up and walk around and check your posture to see, help you be straight. And everyone's posture is straight. There's nothing for me to do. I mean, I just have to say that and then it gets done. Because no one wanted it to make some sound and be heard by the entire room. Anyway, there still was silence. Tomorrow we go home. Most of us go home. And uh, tonight I just wanted to make a few suggestions about the art of mindful living. Um, A few hints as to ways of practice once you get home. Um, Some of it, for those of you who are new, people are on your first retreat, uh, some of what I I have to say may be new to you. A little of what I have to say I would say most of what I have to say you've all heard. Um, but what I want to do is connect it with what we've been doing here. As far as I, from my own point of view, usually when we start to speak at the end of a retreat about how to bring the practice home, we, we call it integration, how to integrate the practice into daily life. I've never been comfortable with that term because what it implies is there's a difference between daily life and here and that somehow we have to integrate this into that. You could make a case for it and of course there's some truth to it. But from my own experience, the, the greatest help in terms of daily life is not any one technique. It's not any method. Vipassana, Zen, or or anything else, but the attitude. Uh, It's a simple attitude, and it's the attitude of viewing life as a whole. Life as a seamless, undivided whole. That is, wherever we go, there we are again. Buckaroo Banzai said that in a movie. (laughs) But it's quite profound. Wherever we go, here we are again. And we always have to pay attention. is only daily life when you come down to it. But we've created a split. The split is in us. Uh, for example, some years ago, a teacher came leading a retreat here. And it was very well-meaning. Uh, it was a meeting of the staff uh, who were going to be the staff for this three-month retreat. And the teacher was, was complimenting the staff on their sacrifice in terms of running the center so that other people can do their three-month retreat. Again, from one point of view, certainly that was true. But it went on and on, and what it was suggesting was that the real thing is just formal sitting. 
And that, let's say, if you were a cook or if you were a gardener or if you were on maintenance or in the office, uh, that that was some kind of a sacrifice so that people could do the, the sitting. As precious a gem as the sitting meditation is, what that tends to do is to create a split. Whereas my understanding of practice is that there's only, there's one life, that's all, for all of us, all the time. And wherever we are, it's possible to be awake. It's possible to see that you're asleep and to wake up. The sitting has unique benefits because it's such a simplified situation in that we don't have to relate to anyone, we don't have to eat, we don't have to uh, read, write. Uh, It's just us with us. And so something wonderful can go on there. You can get rather concentrated and you can also hear your mind very clearly. But if we create that split, then when people are working in the kitchen, we shouldn't be surprised if they're not as mindful in the kitchen or if they, if they don't feel as if they're doing something as worthwhile as the people in the hall. Whereas, again, my understanding is the attitude, uh, of the, the proper attitude is not that at all. One uh, Tibetan yogi who attained enlightenment was a cook almost his entire life as a monk in the monastery. And when asked how he got so deep, he sat, of course, but not as much as many of the others because he was cooking a lot. He said, I just treated everything that I had to do when I was cooking as the most important thing in the world. There's only now. Everything else is our imagination. And if we learn how to awaken into now, uh, that's it. Now includes cooking, etc. Actually, in one interview today, we discovered that uh, there is no tomorrow to go home to. That's just an idea. Because when we get home tomorrow, it will be today. <laughs> it will, right? It's always today. Tomorrow is just an idea. Maybe it's a useful one, but actually for you, it's not so useful if you start getting lost in uh, imagining what tomorrow is going to be like, how happy everyone's going to be to see you when you come home, uh, and take your mind off what we're doing here. So the attitude is, no matter how routine the activity is that you're doing, uh, wherever, no matter what it is you're doing, no matter how ordinary the activity that you're doing, this is dharma. That is, world is dharma, dharma is world. And as precious as the sitting is, and as precious as the walking is, and the quiet and everything that we've managed to arrange here is, and I know we, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't important, if you dip it in bronze, you know, and like make a trophy out of it, and set it off against where you're going to when you go back home, you're going to create a problem that needn't exist. Whereas really, the the idea of practice is to live wholeheartedly, to live a full life, to flower. 
none of us are going to be able to do uh, retreats like this forever. We all have to we have to work and study and care for things. And so it's really an attitude of well, it's the art of mindful living. It's how to bring care and sensitivity into absolutely everything that we do. If that attitude takes root in us and we begin to understand how precious life is, this definitely uh, relates to what we talked about the other evening on the contemplation of death. That in the Buddha's teaching, one of the most important reasons to contemplate death was to appreciate life. That is by finally getting it, that each and every one of us must die at some point. We don't know when, but we do know we must die, all of us. When that idea sinks into the heart, when it's no longer just an idea, then it enables us to wake up to how precious life is. So all of these, they all come together, all these different ideas come together. When we go home, of course, if you can keep up a daily sitting practice, that would be wonderful. I would encourage you all, and new people perhaps don't know this, a daily practice. Try to sit a bit each day. Uh, think of it as not so much as a luxury, but something really important and necessary. It's setting aside a certain amount of time each day to be with yourself, to you, for you to be with yourself independent of whatever else you're doing during the day, whether you value it or you don't value it, at least some part of the day is set aside where you settle down, you quiet yourself, and you listen to yourself. You allow yourself to be just as you are. No pretense, no roles to play, not even the role of the yogi sitting in meditation. And just learn how to be true we, we, we learn how to be true to our experience. And this is the core of self-knowing. In this teaching, uh, self-knowing is, of course, at the heart of it. I'm using self-knowing in an active sense rather than self-knowledge, which is more common. Because sometimes when we talk about self-knowledge, it sounds like we're accumulating insights into ourselves and then we fill up reams of books with our insights about ourselves. Whereas the insight that's important in this practice, in Vipassana practice, it's the current one. We're, we're constantly learning afresh. It's first-hand knowledge of our experience in this moment, right now. And so it's not something we accumulate, but rather we see into the moment in uh, exactly what is right now. When we get back, not only the sitting and how long you should sit, of course, is variable. Uh, each person has to uh, decide and that would be determined by how much free time you have and um, how your practice is going. What I would suggest is whatever time you think is uh, 
appropriate, let's say you feel 45 minutes or half an hour or an hour, um, try to sit it. You won't always feel like sitting it, but if you only sit when you feel like it, you'll only get the mind, you'll only get to know the mind that feels like sitting. You'll never get to know the mind that doesn't feel like sitting. And that mind is very important to get to know. Often quite surprising when you sit even though you don't feel like it. Uh, it's quite incredible at times what comes up. Again, don't march yourself to the cushion at gunpoint. But rather, through understanding, very gently, uh, encourage yourself to set aside some time where there's nothing to do. There's no conversation to make, there's no meal to cook, there's nothing to study, no homework to do, no book to write, no garbage to take out. And you just settle in and be right there in the middle of your own experience. The breath, of course, is always there. And then most of our time, of course, will be daily life, relationship. Big subject, obviously. I just want to uh, hint at it a little bit. In our practice, you can view relationship as a mirror. That is, if you're on the path of self-knowing, everything that happens to us in life uh, reflects back and gives us some information about ourselves. As soon as somebody is in your presence, you have a reaction. We can't help that. It's what life is. And more and more as we see our reactions, if you're in a relationship, uh, sensitivity to how the other person affects you. It's not that you have to endlessly talk about it to the other person, but you begin to see your own responses. You begin to learn uh, this is self-knowledge in a very immediate, vivid, alive way. You begin to see resistances, fears, shyness, boldness. You begin to see what you like and what you don't like. You come in touch with pain. You come in touch with joy. And you, it comes about as a gift because as other people come in our presence, whether we like it or not, we respond to them. And so that's an, a piece of information about us. It's not static, it's quite dynamic and alive. You can't do that unless you're mindful. If you pay attention, if even if you never sit on the cushion, and I'm not suggesting that, but you learned the art of paying attention, you're going to learn about yourself. Life itself will be the great teacher. You know, in teaching the, this over the years, uh, there's always a problem that I found. If I share it with you, uh, perhaps you can avoid it. When we put a lot of emphasis and talk about how wonderful it is to sit, and you know we've been doing that all week, and it is, then people, we, we tend to fixate on the sitting and everything that's other, other than sitting gets devalued. It's not quite it. So then we shift over and we talk, as I've just done, about a cook who attained enlightenment and how important it is in daily life and that if you pay attention, you can learn about yourself just through your ordinary living. And then, that's right. Boy, that's, that's more important. That's real. That's my life. Not sitting in some little room or a hall quietly. And then we neglect the sitting. It's not either or. 
both have a slightly different role to play. Being quiet with ourselves, sometimes for extended periods of time like here, other times not so, not as long. And then unfolding our legs, getting up from the chair, however we're sitting, and then entering into life. Entering into the marketplace, as one text put it, with open, with open hands, saying, you know, here I am, I'm ready to live and to help. And it becomes a very beautiful dynamic between action and contemplation, action and contemplation. We learn to sit in stillness. And as you know, the stillness can become very still. And then we learn to drop that stillness and to let it go and immediately immerse ourselves in family life, work life, life with our friends, whatever. And then we go back into the stillness. We come out of the stillness back into dynamic life. And after a while, there's no split. It's just uh, each in turn is, is quite wonderful. We don't set up comparisons and priorities. If you pay attention in relationship to yourself, to the other person, and if your communication with the other person is is guided by what you honestly learn about yourself and about the other person and be helpful if, if the other person in relationship, this is perhaps more an intimate relationship, if they can do the same thing, there's a level of communication that is possible. Uh, that's quite alive, dynamic, and beautiful. In order to do it, we have to give up our precious clinging to the ego. In fact, mainly what we find out is that the preoccupation is with me and mine. I love you. And when we look, where is that coming from? It comes from a very deep, deep egocentric center. I love you. But we, we don't have to go to war with that because that's, the truth is that's all of our starting points. We're all egomaniacs. It's just normal. That's what the human condition is. But what we can do is begin to watch how much of what we do and say comes from that need to enhance, to maintain this sense of self of somebody who's somebody. Images, And so much of what we do are done to build up this sense of being a somebody and then maintaining it. And sometimes the world reinforces it and tells us nice things about ourselves. We're handsome and beautiful and intelligent and sensitive and kind, and then we feel great. And at other times it tears it all down. We get rejected. And we go up and down and up and down. The practice of seeing that is moving with the movement of me and mine, seeing how much of life is appropriated basically by notions inside of ourselves as to who we are and what it is that belongs to us and doesn't belong to us. With practice, you begin to see into that level of reality and to let it go. What I'd like to do is now link that to our humble yogi jobs that we've had here. Why, if you recall, think back through the week, and you know you've been asked at interview, maybe not in every interview, but certainly sometimes, 
how is your yogi job going? And a few people looked at me in a strange way. Well, what does he want to know about my yogi job? I'm just mopping the floor. That's not very important. That was the look that I, I saw anyway. I thought I'm supposed to come into the interview and we talk about meditation. Our suggestion... Boy, how time flies. Can I take a little bit longer? (laughs) (laughs) Narayan's the boss. (laughs) I wear the pants, but Narayan's the boss. because there's some important things that you simply must know before you go back to them. <laughs> and if I don't get it across to you, your whole lives will be just you know, devalued and shattered, and just totally worthless. Okay. If you recall, what we've been suggesting is, let's say if you're vacuuming or sweeping, to become one with that activity, to unite with it. Okay, and as you probably know by now, if you remember to, to even begin to try to do that, as you begin to vacuum, to sleep, to chop vegetables, etc., whatever your yogi job was, you're not united with it for very long. The mind wanders off and thinks, it has considerations about the job. Uh, I'm too good for this job, or uh, I paid all this money and now they have me cleaning out the toilets. <laughs> And so we separate from the moment. And in, in that moment, what happens is, of course, the me is very prominent. When we're fully immersed in the work, what is possible is self-forgetting. Self-forgetting. That is, we lose this preoccupation of someone who's doing something in the entering into the, the activity itself. Now, at first, that might ex- be experienced as forced even muscular. How do we become one with all these things? As the practice develops, it becomes quite a profound experience. And what happens is, in entering into whatever it is that you're doing, you can for sometimes just a few seconds, but eventually longer, experience what it's like to be living without being plagued by, by me or mine all the time. This the ego that uh, clings on to activities, sticks on to activities and appropriates them. I'm vacuuming. I'm chopping vegetables. And what ha- or the occupation has a certain status. And what happens instead is uh, there's just, just toilet mind. If your job is the toilet, just toilet mind. That's just like the cook. The most important thing on this entire planet is to clean that toilet. There's no strain involved. It's just that there's no reservations, no conflict. You understand that this is your life in this moment. Right now, whatever we encounter, and continues to be this way, whatever we encounter is our life. And so in this moment, if you have toilet mind, that means you're, you're into it. And you do it that's all contributing to moving to a depth of practice that the sitting is also heading towards. 
It's a letting go of the, the world of ego dreams. Or at least weakening it a bit. The world of being so attached and beholden to images and pictures of who we are and who we used to be and who we will be. And as many of you know, in the teachings of the Buddha, often the practice is characterized as a practice that takes you to your true nature, to your original nature, to your Buddha nature. What is that? It isn't the ego. It isn't these notions that we've fashioned into images and thoughts and descriptions which we take to be us. It isn't our name. These are there and they will be with us for the rest of our life and they they play a part. But meditation is an interior journey. It's an inner flowering. And the flowering has everything to do with letting go of who we think we are and being who we actually are. At that depth, we're all the same. Each and every one of us, we we all have the same mind. There's only one Buddha mind. It expresses itself through each personality differently. And as there's clarification, as our consciousness becomes clearer, more and more we tap an energy, a quite lovely and wonderful energy. In fact, whether you know it or not, you probably must have tapped it. Even the beginnings of it may be not so intense on this retreat. At any rate, without going too much further into it, let's just move from yogi, from your yogi job. Uh, take that as, a, as a, an example, as an exemplar, as a model. See if when you come, go home, you can't begin to do everything wholeheartedly. We, we selected one thing, your yogi job, but we really meant everything. Wake up, come to life. Look at your life as it is in a fresh and new way, whatever the round of living that makes up a day for you. doesn't matter. We each have, we're each in charge of a different part of the universe. We each have a different portion of the universe to take care of. Maybe it's part of a clinic. Maybe it's a kitchen. Maybe it's a classroom. And see if this isn't a better way to live. In order to do it, though, you're going to have to face the fact that most of the time we're asleep. We're living in ego dreams, living in the past, living that's over, living in an imagined future. In the meantime, the only thing that's really real is right now is slipping through our fingers. You can't grasp at the present because it's already gone, as I say my words, whatever they were, our past. But yet we can learn to be sensitive to now. All the ideas that that we have about how life was, how life should be, how life, even how life is, those ideas are not it. The practice is, uh, I don't know how to put this, one of the most important things to find out is that life is always, life continues to insist on always being exactly what it is. It never gives up. You can count on it. Life is going to insist on being exactly what it is in this moment. Now, we may have ideas as to what it is. 
okay, you're welcome to have your ideas. If you want to live in that world, we need the ideas as well. But the other isness is rock bottom fact. You can count on it. It's going to insist on being just what it is right now. The practice is opening up to that level of reality, to raw life, to tasting it, to experiencing it, to entering into the, the world of conventional reality. I'm not diminishing that. Of humans living together in a society with rules and norms and culture and all of those things. We have to live in that. But the freedom comes from um, coming through that and then returning in a different way so that we come back to the world of form, but now we can play in form, enjoy form, all the different forms that make up our life. Um, one of the things that can help us stay in the present moment is the breath. I feel fairly confident that everyone in this room has learned that the breath, at least from time to time, can help you wake up to this moment. And I'd like to, um, just in the time that we have left, give you a few examples from actual experience, my own and some of the people in Cambridge, um, about how the breath is, can be a tremendous help in practice in terms of staying awake, of keeping the practice alive wherever you are. Let me read to you a, a kind of charter, kind of Magna Carta of Anapanasati, the full awareness of breathing. It's a very simple exchange between a Burmese Buddhist monk uh, named Webu Sayadaw and one of his disciples, a yogi in, in Burma. The, as you'll hear, the yogis in Burma are much more polite than the American yogis. Okay, and here's the Sayadaw means teacher. And yogi is one of us, a practitioner. The Sayadaw says, he's asking the people in the meditation hall, Sayadaw, don't all of you breathe in and out? That's his question. The yogi answers, we do breathe, sir. Sayadaw, when do you start breathing in and out? Yogi, when we are born, sir. Sayadaw, do you breathe when you sit? Yes, sir. Do you breathe in and out when you stand upright? Yes, sir. When you are walking? We do breathe in and out then also, sir. Do you breathe when you are eating, drinking, and working to make a living? Yes, sir. Do you breathe when you go to sleep? Yes, sir. Are there times when you are so busy that you have to say, sorry, I have no time to breathe now, I'm too busy? <laughs> Yogi, there isn't anyone who can live without breathing, sir. Can you see um, this very simple human fact that to be alive is to breathe provides us with an opportunity. It's just another method. It is not the only way, just to make sure you understand that. It is a way. It is one of the very good ways because it's so simple and natural. We're always doing it. If you get the import of what the teacher is uh, saying there, he's saying, for goodness sakes, 
take advantage of the fact that you're always breathing. Because as you learn how to turn to your breathing, that will help you come back out of dreamland into now. Okay, let me give you some examples, very practical ones, how people are are, are doing this, using this. Uh, Many of you have read the work of Thich Nhat Hanh, and uh, I assume you will be familiar with a few of these. And, but it's not just in a book. It's being done by uh, people like ourselves all over the place. Um, just, I'm going to just a few random ones. Okay, first, there's a whole category of times during the day which we treat as if it's dead time. And I've experimented with this. I've gone through my day and tried to see how much of this time is there? There's really a lot. By dead time, it's not really dead, of course. It's in quotes. What I mean is something like this. You're waiting for an elevator. Maybe it's 20 seconds. Uh, you p- purchase something in a store. You hand the purchase, the, the object, to the clerk. The clerk is starting to look at it, to write out the receipt and to wrap it. And you're standing there waiting until they do that. Perhaps they ask you for your credit card. And you're waiting until they... And then uh, they do that. And then you do what you have to do. You're waiting for an interview here. You're waiting to go see the dentist. You're waiting to go see the doctor. We do a lot of waiting. Have you noticed? Okay. And often we don't like it. Okay. Some of it's very small stuff. It's 10 seconds here and 20 seconds there and a minute and a half over there. Uh, if you can begin to remember in those moments to come to the breathing, one of the things that comes out of it, can come out of it, is you refresh yourself. Particularly as the practice deepens, it's a joy to breathe. And what happens is you rejuvenate yourself in that moment. Uh, the mind becomes a little bit more calm. You are brought back to the here and now, which is where you are anyway. It's just that you think you're somewhere else. And so it's two or three breaths. And then the elevator comes and you walk in. You take your purchase and you walk out. If you, ke- if you can remember to do it, the instruction, let's put it this way, you do not have to be Albert Einstein to understand this method. <laughs> the problem is we don't remember to do it. So it's a matter of recollection, which is one of the meanings of mindfulness, sati. One of the translations of sati is recollection. The idea of mindfulness is not complicated. It's just that we keep forgetting to do it. So that's a whole area. Uh, A dramatic one that many people have worked with now. Let's say you're driving a car and you come to a red light. Typically, we see the red light as an enemy. It's an obstacle. If only that light were green, uh, if it were green, I could get to where I'm really going to. Instead, I have to wait here, and for God's sakes, and we, you know, we're tense and looking at the light and restless. Usually, when we get to the place that we're hurrying to, uh, then we're anxious to get from there to someplace, someplace else. Okay, so with the red, with the red light, if you take it on as a practice. The red light now becomes like the bell of mindfulness. You know how we've used the bell here? Uh, sometimes when the bell rings, you stop what you're doing. At some monasteries, uh, it's like that. 
when the bell rings, you just stop what you're doing. You pause and you're with your breath. It's sort of to come back to yourself. To refresh yourself so that you can then enter into action in an alert, clear way. So the red light now becomes like a monastery bell. If you educate yourself, at a certain point, you'll be so happy to see a red light. Oh, wonderful, a chance to practice. You'd be, you know, so that, that's one thing that can help. The phone rings. Uh, some people do, never like to answer it. I'm one of those. Some can't wait to get to the phone. Some incredible person is going to be calling at the other end with marvelous news or you've just won some, I don't know what. At least my phone calls aren't like that. No, I'm sorry, some of my friends are here. I have to be <laughs> careful. What if you just, when you heard the bell, when the phone rings, instead of pouncing on it, you paused, you were with your breath, just two or three breaths. Uh, it's okay to let two or three rings go by. In the culture, that's legitimate. People will still keep ringing. Then when you pick up the phone, you have a much better chance of really listening, of being right there and making the phone conversation very much a part of practice. Very much a part of practice. Uh, recently, my father developed Alzheimer's disease, and I had the just finished uh, very painful and arduous um, job of uh, placing him in a nursing home, and then having to to apply for Medicaid. It was quite an experience to look at that form. In fact, the entire situation. Uh, it's as if you can't escape your karma, you know. Uh, this is not about my father. I mean, thank you for your sympathy. I can see some of your looks, and I appreciate it. It's about the form. It's about the Medicaid form and some of the other forms. Uh, you'll just have to believe me when I tell you that for quite a few years I've had as little to do with banking, real estate, the law, uh, forms, insurance, etc. Suddenly, all at once, I have to sell a condo, I have to get a power of attorney, I have to fill out a form uh, about my father's financial situation so it can be evaluated. And reading these forms, you, you get a feeling that people have been cheating so much and lying so much that these forms are set up for, uh, for criminals. You know, it's like, they don't believe anything. You've got a document. Uh, okay, so I sit down and I try to do this form. And it's not the kind of thing that I love to do. And I've been pretty lucky for quite a few years in skipping out on that kind of stuff. I haven't made a million dollars, but I haven't had to fill out a lot of forms either. <laughs> Suddenly I have to. And I feel incredible resistance. Uh, questions like, prove that my parents are married. <laughs> I'm serious. And how can I prove that they're married? They, they left Russia with just the clothes on their back. They have no... Uh, prove their birth. I couldn't prove that. I can't prove they have no marriage certificate. So then there are alternative ways of uh, documentation that they vote. Well, that'll, so that, and my father had an idiosyncratic way of uh, taking care of his finances. I had to... It's like being a detective, uh, Kate, you know, 
KGB, CIA, all rolled into one. Uh, he can't help me. My mother can't help me. And I'm trying to figure out little notes scribbled on corners of pieces of paper and just how does this all hang together? So you can understand. I mean, questions. Uh, at the meantime, I get a phone call about I have to fill out a fo another form about selling the condo and it's in triplicate and uh, how much you're going to charge. And there's a whole world of that, a whole world of getting legal authority to represent my father, meeting with attorneys, meeting with bankers, meeting with doctors about his condition so that he can be admitted into a hospital, meeting with the heads of hospitals to find out what the hospital is like, all with forms, endless forms. And I felt this enormous resistance. If I can just let you into just a small piece of that. You're sitting down and suddenly you look at this form and some of the questions start coming up plus the kind of work you'd have to do to answer them. And suddenly it's a blur. You look at the form and it looks like an eye chart, you know. <laughs> you know. Uh, it makes no, st the letters make no sense. You can't read it. You're so resistant. To put it mildly, it was pure torture. Almost 30 years of practice down the drain. <laughs> but then finally, after a little bit of this, a few hours, frankly, maybe more, suddenly a light bulb went off, like in the comic books. I don't know, they still do that? I haven't read comic books in a while. Suddenly realized, hey, how about your breath? Jerk. Goofy. Goofball. Remember what Webbu Saidor said? That even when you're filling out Medicaid forms, you're still breathing. Turn to your breath. In, out, in, out. Suddenly, you calm down a bit. You come back to the same project with a slightly new mind. Still, it, it wasn't paradise, but <laughs> you now have a chance. You begin to look at it, and little by little, and feeling the resistance at a certain, not trying to overcome it. At first, the normal way is to overcome your resistance by an act of will. You become like a tank, you know, because this has to get done. And you just mow right over your resistance. That isn't our practice. Sometimes you have to. There's a crisis. You, it doesn't matter what you think or what you feel. You just do it. But this wasn't one of those times. And so I had a lot of opportunity to become an expert on my own resistance to the world of money and, and uh, all of this stuff. And so in looking at it, you see the power of the resistance and then it starts to melt. I hope at least sometimes you saw that. If you don't fight with your restlessness, if you don't fight with your fear, if you don't fight with your anger, if you don't fight with anything, that is, you establish a peaceful relationship with yourself. You learn how to do that. This is practice in nonviolence, beginning with ourselves. Even subtle violence is not the practice. And little by little, the resistance, you see it. You see how deep it is. But it starts to fall away, and the breath is just a big help in that. It helps nourish the mindfulness that enables you to look at the resistance. I needed help. I needed the breath to hold my hand while I looked at what it was that I was resisting so much. And eventually, actually, it, it does have a sort of happy ending that I was able to do it. I did finish the Medicaid application. I, I applied. Of course, it got rejected. <laughs> I don't think it was my fault. <laughs> we still have a little bit too much money. It's not, we're not eligible. But it was doable. It wasn't something I want to do, but it was fine. It was workable. 
other examples which are similar to this. Uh, the precepts. Not to, let's t- not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse sexual energy, not to lie or misuse speech, to use speech correctly and c- with kindness, uh, not to use intoxicants to, to blind ourselves, not to take what doesn't belong to us. Well, you know, the precepts wouldn't exist if we didn't have a tendency to do all of those things. I mean, there would be no five precepts that we often have ceremonies and people get certificates and all kinds of things go on in Buddhism about the five precepts. In one sense, it means you're a Buddhist if you take the refuges and the precepts. Some of you did. You didn't know that now you're a Buddhist. (laughs) You're in big trouble. So these precepts exist because our tendency is to lie, to steal, to kill, to misuse sexual energy, etc. Okay, so let's say you're about to, you're talking to somebody and you hear something coming that is comforting. It's about to come out of your mouth, but it's not true or it's harsh. And sometimes you have to hold on to a breath for dear life. You just, one breath can make the difference between it comes out and then you create a situation which is trouble or there's a certain restraint, a loving restraint, because you're protecting yourself finally. When you lie, for the most part, I mean, there are lies to save lives, which I think are constructive, but for the most part, doesn't it inevitably, we get exposed, people find out, and then, you know, it doesn't work. The precepts uh, are the basis for a happy life, not only for ourselves, but for everyone in our life. And so sometimes, Uh, you can turn to your breathing to help you restrain yourself from an action that you're about to commit that is just going to bring nothing but trouble. I've done it. You can do it. Sometimes, you know how thought proliferates? Let's say somebody says something and you don't quite like the way they said it. But you're not on fire yet. It's starting to cook a little bit. And then they say it again, and then it's starting to cook a little bit more. You know. And before you're on the way to getting hysterical. Okay. You still have the possibility, because one thought feeds on another. You have one negative thought, and then another one comes in and says, yeah, that's right, and they were always awful. You never could trust them. Look, they're doing it again, and you can't turn your back on them. I didn't, they told you, your friends told you this. Before you know it, you've created an incredible melodrama Uh, which is very hard to dig your way out of. You do it after it's over, the smoke is cleared. You're in jail, perhaps. (laughs) But sometimes you can turn to the breathing and it helps short-circuit a very destructive course of of mental unfoldment. The breath can help you do that. Let Let me report a very touching case. It's now... But when I say commonplace, I don't mean that it's not valuable. But now in Cambridge, we use this a lot in daily life, and we encourage all the people who come to the center to use it. And uh, I almost have more examples than I can get, than I can this time for. Not almost, I do. I don't even bother remembering most of them because the principle is what's important. But here's one last one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
there was a person a few years ago who came to the center who was terrified of crowds. Uh, uh, for him, a crowd was even uh, 10 people. And his life was severely restricted by this. He'd become very, very anxious. And he was so tired of it and so fed up of having that fear of crowds and started to practice. The practice got stronger, of course. If you do it, it gets stronger. If you don't, it doesn't. And finally, we decided on something. He felt up to it. I wasn't sure. It sounded like a lot. We both came up with, came up with this together. Go to Park Street earlier than the, I'm sorry, Park Street, I'm so, so, this is the ego, so self-centered. Park Street is a train stop in, in Boston. Okay. If you're going from Boston to Cambridge, you get, sometimes you get on the train at Park Street and it takes you to Cambridge. And of course at around 4.35 it starts, the rush hour starts and the train is crowded. Uh, so what we worked out was go to Park Street, before the rush hour, a little bit before, and then wait, and then wait until you see a train that's crowded. Get into the train, make sure you get a post to hang on to. And turn to your breathing. Now, by now, he did have confidence in the practice. It had helped him through a lot of apprehension about being in crowds without being in crowds. You know, in other words, imaginary apprehension. And he described this to me of the trip from Park Street to Cambridge. It was just about 15 minutes. He came back wringing wet, just totally soaked. He held on to the post and he held on to his breath and he was able to just look at his anxiety, to just watch it come up as more people got on the train and then a few went off and then even more came on and, you know, maybe, I don't know, three or four stops, four or five stops. And it was such a triumph for him uh, the beginnings of really making a wedge in a very, very deep fear. And whatever it is, you, yours is. The principle is the same. Our lives, the content of our lives are different. But the principle is the same. The practice has everything to do with coming to terms with ourselves. To finally fully accepting ourselves as we are. Learning how to do that. And if life insists on being exactly the way it is, then each one of us, we're stuck with ourselves the way we are. Who else are we going to be? We have to be ourselves. And yet we keep trying to be like this one and like that one and this movie star and that athlete and that great uh, this and that great that. Okay, we can't help that. That's part of how we learn things. But finally, it all, it, it all comes down as the practice is about you. And it's about me. And we always start in the same place. The pra- if you're here for the first time or if you've been practicing it, come to IMS and have had 23-month retreats, it always begins at the same place. How you are now. How you are exactly now. What your bodily condition is. What your mind is like. The kinds of feelings you have. And these are coming up from moment to moment. How the breath is. Different moods. That's the stuff of our life. The practice is learning how to have a mind that's calm and clear enough, stable enough, so that when we bring our life into focus, or we attempt to bring our life into focus, we can do it. Wisdom is the ability to see see things as they actually are. It's the ability to do that. Rather than how we think they are, how we think they should be, how they used to be. 
It's the ability to see things as they actually are. And so the entire time we've been spending together since last Friday night, calming the mind, spending days on just being with the breath, then opening the field up to use the breath as a kind of home, but now allowing everything else to be part of the meditation, different moods, different images, different mind states, the way the body is, etc. It's not a complicated principle. It does take some courage because we're so afraid of what's inside of us. We're so afraid of the unknown. We cling to the known, even though often it's miserable. The practice is beginning right where we are and forever doing that. It's forever beginning where we are. If I had to put it in one word, it's becoming more real. It's becoming real. continue to look into our lives. May we see things exactly as they are. May such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.